Well, good morning. Make sure everything works before we get rolling here. Awesome. So when I was a, you know, when I worked in youth ministry, uh, I, one of, the, one of the things that always bothered me a little bit, I always, I always tussled with what we would call helicopter parents. Um, and and I understand maybe like my earliest days as a youth pastor, because I was, you know, like an intern who was 20, uh, maybe three years older than some of the kids. And so for, you know, for a parent to have a distrust of a, of a 19, 20, 21 year old, okay. But certainly around the, you know, the, the mid 20s, when I was an actual adult that was paying their own rent and, you know, had a professional degree, there was always, no matter what church I would go to, there was always at least one or two parents who, you know, when it came to, to go to an event or a retreat or a mission trip, you know, they just had this deep distrust of, of my ability to keep children alive somehow. Uh, and so, uh, as a matter of fact, my first church that I ever worked in, I had one parent, they, it worked out, I, thankfully I liked them as a, as a human, because they were my number one volunteer, but the reason they volunteered is because they were so worried about the safety of their kid that they just went everywhere their kid went. And so it was great. It was female. I always had a female volunteer anytime we'd go anywhere because I could count on the fact that, mm-hmm, I won't say her name, you know, was so worried about the safety of, of her daughter that she would always go everywhere her, her daughter went. So I, I, it always drove me nuts. I said, look, like, I, I'm a very safety-conscious guy. I was a pretty responsible youth pastor. I was not the one that's like, yeah, we just like to set things on fire, you know. I always kind of took safety as a very serious, high standard when we went anywhere. Um, you, any, any youth that have ever uh, kind of lived under me could tell you that uh, when we would go on trips, I was always the safety Nazi. You know, every time uh, they hated me when we would go through airports and things because I was safety first. Uh, but now as a father, I 100% understand every possible helicopter nature, because the idea now of me allowing 12-year-old Grammar Aaron to hang out anywhere with 23-year-old version of me terrifies my soul. <laughs> Absolutely. T- I, would, I wouldn't even let them, I wouldn't even let me, 23-year-old me babysit my children, um, let alone take 15 of them out of state somewhere across the country on, on a mission trip. And so, you know, why do I think that is? Why this change of heart other than I'm a dad now and I get it? Well, because I know something now that I didn't know then, and that's this. Um, Even though I was trustworthy, even though I was responsible, even though I was careful, even though I cared deeply about and loved the kids that that I got to serve as as a youth pastor, as a dad, what I now know that I then couldn't possibly know is it doesn't matter how much I am invested in them, only a dad or a mom could love a kid that much, right? There's, there's a love and a care and a worry about a child that, that comes only by having them as your children. Britta and I sometimes joke, like, well, we have, we have some friends with kids uh, that we like, and then we have some friends with kids that we don't like their kids, you know, and it's like, we're, you're a friend, but your kid just kind of drives me nuts. And you realize, like, you, you can like other children, but you really, like, there, there's a difference when it's your own, right? They're the only, the only children that you love unconditionally, that, like, you don't just want to send home all the time. 
to someone else. And so there's this divide that, that comes, this understanding as a parent that you have a love for your child that surpasses any kind of love you've ever known. I thought I knew what love was, and then I held grandma in my arms for the first time in the hospital. And I go, oh, okay, this is what this is. I didn't understand that, right? There is a depth of the love that comes, right? In high school, every one of us, raise your hand if in high school you told someone that you're not married to now that you love them. Do you think back to that time and go like, I didn't even know what love was. I had no idea what it was as a concept. I said it, I don't know, probably just because I wanted them to stick around. And it's the next thing you say if you want someone to stick around. But like, you, the, the comparison's not even there. Right? If, you, if you compare like, your high school love that I don't even know where they are now to, to the love you have for a child, it's this exponential, incomprehensible increase in love. Right? And I want us to keep that depth of love that we have as parents for children in mind as we look at our passage for this morning. Right? In our Advent series called What Child Is This? We've been looking at the names that Isaiah 9-6 ascribes to the coming Christ. In the first week, we looked at the wonderful counselor and what it means that God is our, that Jesus is our, our counselor, our wonderful, wise uh, advice that he gives us, the, the, the guide for life, the one that tells us how to live, not out of a a sense for wanting to be a dictator, but because he knows what's best for us and he lovingly guides us into the fullness of what life offers, right? Then last week we looked at how he is the mighty God and what that means, that he is not just a, a wise counselor, a smart person with some power behind him, but that he is all-powerful, that he has the fullness of divinity as his weight when he rules and reigns, that he's a king that has not just the know-how to make it happen, but the power to pull it off, right? And so this morning, we're going to look at the third one of these. So let's stand together as we read from Isaiah 9, 6. By now should be painfully familiar to us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Isn't it nice you get to stand for such a little amount of time and then come back, come back down? Uh, so as we said before, Isaiah is, is speaking. This, this whole passage takes place in a really political context, right? He's talking about a ruler who will come, who will establish a kind of kingdom that the Israelites hadn't seen before. And so there's all this dripping political imagery and kind of understanding behind this, which is why the, the Israelites expected a political savior when Jesus came around, right? They were hoping for someone that would do political things, like overthrow the Roman Empire in, in a certain way. And, and, and the political imagery makes sense when we look at kind of all the other names that are given to Christ here, right? A, a political person would be a, a wonderful counselor. Well, yes, they should be wise in how they rule. They would be mighty. Well, yes, they should be powerful. They would even be a, 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 a prince of peace. Well, yes, we would hope that a ruler would come that wouldn't just have us always be in wartime, but that would be a peaceful ruler. All those things make sense. But one of the weird ones then becomes this third that we're looking at today of everlasting father. Because I don't know about you, when I look to elect a president, I look for wisdom, I look for power and capability, I look for someone who has a peaceable nature, but I'm not looking for a daddy. 
I've never looked at any of the presidents that we've had in our history of our country, both when I've been alive or before that, as someone that I would aspire as a, as a father figure, right? It would be really creepy if the president got on the microphone and said, I, I think of myself as all of your daddies. Right? This, this father imagery doesn't really jive with political leadership, but we have to understand that things are a little bit different in the context of Isaiah. This idea of father had a lot more political connotation during that time. And not just that, uh, you, know, you, would, you would think leaders then would kind of think of themselves as the father of their subjects. Kings would do that. They would, they would function in like a, a fatherly role. You know, he, they're the ruler, the, these are the children. That, that's kind of language that you would have seen. A lot of times Roman emperors would use that language as well. But, but father... Has, has a theological implication as well when we, when we look at it. Not just in the paternal sense, but in an actual theological salvation kind of sense. And here's, here's what I mean. Charles Spurgeon writes a lot about this. So if you want to dig into this idea of, of fatherhood, you can. But in Hebrew culture, a lot of things centered around family and lineage, right? Most of the people in that culture became whatever their father was, Right? The son would take over the father's business. If you were born into a family that were shepherds, you would be a shepherd. You weren't going off to college and picking your own major. And just in the same way, most of the people of that time, whatever their socioeconomic status was, was the same as whatever their parents had been and their parents before them and their parents before them. There wasn't a whole lot of shifting and climbing of the socioeconomic ladder. And so a lot of who you were and what you did kind of went in line with who your father was and what he did, right? So you see this comparison now. So what we see in scripture a lot of times happens, it goes beyond just this socioeconomic stuff, but we see it compared to Adam as well. A lot of times you'll see in scripture that we are called the children of Adam, right? We are born as sinners, and the reason we are born as sinners <coughs> is because we are born under the sin of Adam. And so Adam is our earthly father. He is the first of all men. He is the one him and Eve originally sinned, and so that sin comes down to us generationally, right? The way that a Hebrew man would have inherited the estate of the father, so we inherit the sin of Adam. Adam is our first father, and he's not a great dad. There's this connotation that comes. He is federally kind of the head of us in a way. And so Jesus comes in and serves as what Scripture oftentimes refers to as the second Adam. Jesus comes in and becomes federally our father. So he takes his, our sin upon himself and in that way, we now become the inheritors of eternal life because he is the one who conquered death. So we follow him in death, and we also follow him in the subsequent rising and eternal life. He washes our sin clean. Right? And so there is a kind of political connotation to that in, in, in the sense that we are the subjects of our father. And so we, we generationally inherit what the father, what our father leaves for us. When it was Adam, we inherit death. When it was Jesus, we inherit life. 
And so there is a, a kind of precedence for it also to be part of the political nature and term. And people would have understood the language that Isaiah uses to describe the Savior in this way, that we would see when he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace, that those are all terms that can be applied to a political leadership. Because the successes of the king are the successes of the kingdom, right? There is a paternal type of language that would have been very common then. So we can see that this fits right into the other descriptors that we see in Isaiah 6. Next, so what we need to do next is look at two things. Because both the words everlasting and the word father have some meaning in this passage. And they have some things that they don't mean. And it's important that before we look at kind of the implications of this for us, that we examine those two words just on their own. So the first is father. When we hear father in scripture, normally between God, we think of father, son, Holy Spirit, right? And so the, the references of father are usually a reference to the, the first person of the Trinity, God the father. And so when we read it here, we think, well, well God is all three in one, and so it's probably talking about the God, the Father here. But it's important to understand, no, it is not. Right? In, this, in this instance, it is not in any way speaking about the first person of the Trinity, but completely and utterly the second person, the Son, Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the description here is of Jesus serving in the role of, of a fatherly figure to his people. God the Father is our Father, and the three are one in a way that we can never fully comprehend. But this passage, Isaiah 9-6, makes no reference of any kind to the, the Father himself, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The, the, the term Father here is a description of Jesus and Jesus alone, and the nature that he will take as it pertains to us, his children. The second is that the term everlasting is also a little bit unique here. Because when we think of the, the Trinity, the God in, in any way, and we apply the term everlasting, what we mean by that is that God is the one who was, who is, and always will be, right? It's, it's, a, it's a description of the eternal nature of God himself. And so what we a lot of times want to do with this is we want to say, well, he is, Jesus will always be there. And, and it's true, he will always be there. He always has been, he was never created, he is now, and he always will be. But the term everlasting here is a specific description of the word Father. And so when we read this, what it means is that Jesus, not God the Father, but God the Son, Jesus will serve the role of Father for us, and, and, and not just he will be everlasting in some way, shape, or form, but the role of father that he serves is everlasting. And so what that means in, in short is that Jesus will forever be your father, not just will forever be something, right? The role and nature of Jesus isn't going to change. You are not going to be in eternity and find that somehow Jesus doesn't fulfill the role of your father anymore. He always will be your father. That's the promise that Isaiah gives us. He will send a child that will be born unto us. The government will sit upon his shoulders and he will serve as our counsel, our wisdom, our knowledge, our understanding of the world. He will be mighty in the sense that he will rule and crush every enemy and he will serve as our everlasting father. That will never end. 
Alistair Begg once put it this way. He said that the, the better way of putting everlasting father would be father forever. And so what are the implications of this? What does it mean that Jesus is our Father? Because, quite frankly, Father means different things to different people, depending on the circumstances that you are in or were or how you grew up, right? And so there's four kind of ways that this fleshes itself out that actually affect us in our day-to-day life. And the first is this. Jesus being our Father means that Jesus forgives you, that you have forgiveness, right? 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? The first implication of Jesus as your father is that you have forgiveness of sin. Right? This, this kind of total, kind of un, unmitigated, unreciprocated forgiveness is something that you, you have to be a parent to understand, right? There's nothing your kids could do that you couldn't forgive. Somehow, someday, right? Like it's it's like there are things that uh, Graham says to me, or Erin, in her little ability to speak, says to me that if Britta said to me, I'd probably divorce her, <laughs> right? Like they're actually like divorceable offenses, like in Scripture. Like I would have legitimate grounds, but but because it's a child, like there's this this natural forgiveness and. And a love that knows no end. Like, there's nothing Graham or Aaron could do that I wouldn't forgive. Right? That I wouldn't be able to, to look past. And that forgiveness, exponentially, in a perfect sense, is what Jesus, as our Father, offers us. Right? Jesus doesn't just sweep our faults under the rug, and that's the beauty of it. Like, forgiveness is something that we that we mean in a certain way, but Jesus means in a very different way. Because when Graham wrongs me, forgiveness for me means that I forget that he did it, that I look past his transgressions to me. But when Jesus forgives, it is a far more active forgiveness. See, Jesus, forgiveness of your sin is not just Jesus going, you know what, I love you so much, let's just forget about it. Right? Because God cannot look past sin. And so Jesus' forgiveness as a father is a painful forgiveness, right? You, you serve a Christ, you have a, a Jesus as a father who went to the cross to suffer and die in order to take on the punishment so that he could forgive your sin. We don't suffer like that for our children in this world. And so there is a, a type of forgiveness that goes so much beyond what we think of in an earthly sense of forgiveness, right? You realize that as a human who is stained by sin, you don't even really have the power to actually forgive anything of anybody. You can offer forgiveness, but that forgiveness is birthed by nature out of the forgiveness that comes from Christ, You ever think about that? Even for non-Christians, forgiveness is intrinsically and deeply Christian by its nature. And anyone and everyone on this earth whom you have ever forgiven for anything, you've been enabled to do that and spurred to do that out of the nature of Jesus' forgiveness of us. That's why he says, forgive others as I have forgiven you. And so the first thing that we, that we get, the first benefit of Jesus as our Father, is that we are forgiven. The second is this. 
Jesus, as our Father, gives us a purpose and an identity. The natural implication that, of Jesus being our father is that we are his children. Right? Again, Hebrew culture, family and lineage was everything. If you ever read anyone in scripture, it's always so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Right? People are identified by who their father was. And so when Jesus becomes our father, we receive a new identity. It means we have a, a purpose and a name and an identity that goes beyond anything on this earth. You are no longer John Doe, who is terrible at this, who fails at this, who's okay in this way. But like the, the things of this world no longer identify you. You are now so-and-so, child of God. That's your identity. And, and by the way, with that identity comes something even greater the inheritance of what the Father has, right? Eternal life. The reason you, when you breathe your last, receive eternal life is because you are a child of God and, and you will receive the inheritance of all the Father has. Life is literally a part of your inheritance package. Right? In the same way, when your parents die on this earth, they leave you whatever they had on this earth before they went, Right? might receive a house when they die or a certain amount of assets. Right? Well, the asset of the Father, of Jesus as our Father, is eternal life and life abundant. And so the identity that comes with being his child is what enables us to receive not just forgiveness from sin, but eternal life. We can have that because Jesus is not just our wise counselor, not just the mighty God, not just the Prince of Peace, but our Father. Third, Jesus being our Father means that we are under his boundless love. Jesus loves us. Earlier I compared teenage love to the love you discover when you first hold your, your child in your arms. The, the leap between those two, you could take that leap again exponentially and apply it to the difference between how we love our own children and how much Jesus loves us. You can't ever begin to comprehend the amount of love that Jesus has for you. Because he is your father, Jesus just doesn't tolerate your existence. He loves you. He adores you, you specifically, you individually, you despite all of your faults, your failures, and your blemishes, and the messes, and the things that you worry about making you unworthy, all the mess that you have put into your own head about who you are. Jesus knows that about you. Jesus knows the things about you that are messy that you don't even know. And despite all of those things, Jesus specifically loves you without condition without any condition whatsoever. The God of the universe who made you is not just some distant God who sets the world spinning and we have to wonder what he thinks. We, we can know by the word of the Lord that he deeply loves you and cherishes you and relishes in your existence. Jesus gets excited when he thinks about you. In a way that a father gets excited about their child. I never understood. I was always annoyed. You know, before you have kids, you get together with people who have kids, and you know, you're always hesitant because you ask, like, "Oh, can I see a picture?" 
And like, they never show you one, they show you like 54, right? And you're like, oh, okay, like, I, I don't care about your child that much. I just don't, I never understood that. Well, I'm that weird dad now. You don't ask me for one picture. You're just, you're gonna stand there for five minutes and I'm really sorry about that. It's just the way it works, right? You, you, you relish in the existence of your children because you love them. Some of you really need to hear that this morning. Some of you walk through life every day feeling the weight and the condemnation, but, but not the love of Jesus. Right? And you need to hear this morning clearly and loudly that Jesus deeply cares about and loves you. Not just his people collectively, but you specifically. He knows everything about you, even that which you don't know. And he loves you. Oh, so deeply. Right? And if you ever feel judgment, it's not, it's not judgment. It's Jesus loves you so much, he wants to shape you into what's best for you. His, his disappointment isn't that he looks at you poorly. It's that he looks at you and says, ah, you could be this, and I'm going to help you get there, and I want to help you get there, so I'm going to push you. Right? That's all it is. God doesn't judge in the sense that he has a, a hatred for you or a dislike of you or a, this time he doesn't love you as much because you messed up this week. Jesus loves you unconditionally all the time, every minute of your life, every breath that you take, always. He just loves you more than you could ever hope or imagine. Right? And I hope that, that if you need to think about that, that this season you find rest and comfort in the love of Jesus, if nothing else. If you take nothing else away from me today, take away this. Jesus deeply, intimately loves you, specifically you. Right? And the final piece of it is this. Jesus, as our Father, protects us. I have a, a phrase that I use with, with Graham. Aaron's not old enough yet. But whenever you know, I, I tell him he can't do something or you know, I have to use the word no, whether it's a, a candy he can't have or a thing he can't climb or whatever it is, and he gets real upset with me, uh, I, I ask him, and he's conditioned now. I said, hey, say, Graham, what's daddy's number one job? And he says, to keep me safe. I said, exactly. To keep you safe. And the thing you're doing is not safe. You could get hurt. So I know you think I'm mean, but I have to, I have to say no to keep you safe. And he's four, so you know he gets it like 10% of the time. But but that's 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 my number one job. Well, number two job. My number my number one job is to raise him in knowledge and the love of Christ, right? But my second most important job on this earth is to keep my kids safe, to keep them from harm. Right now, mostly to make sure they don't kill themselves. Jesus is our protection. Because Jesus is your father, Jesus protects you. He keeps you safe. He holds you away from harm, right? Many parents know that, you know, we joke, we joke about kind of keeping our kids from killing ourselves, but it's, it's the number one job we have, right? They're just, the decisions we make are based on the well-being of our children. You know, I joke with Britta all the time. My kids and I will be friends when they graduate from college. Until then, keep them safe. Right? I don't care if they like me. I care if they're safe and love Jesus. Right? They can hate me all they want. And so Jesus, sometimes in an effort to protect us, will, will take steps that seem painful. Right? 
because he wants to shape us and grow us into deeper maturity and understanding of who he is. And so sometimes that protection can feel a little painful. But the reality is this, whether it's the pain that we feel from the protection of Christ himself or the pain that we feel just as part of a sinful world, we serve a God who is our father. And that means that we can't be harmed in an ultimate final way. Even death doesn't get to us. That's why we sing, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Because there is no way that for those under Christ, victory, uh, like we have victory over the grave, even. There's nothing that can happen to you that will put the nail in the coffin in an ultimate sense. If you die on your way out of here today, you'll be with Jesus in paradise in eternal life, and the full safety and the comfort of all that comes with that. Jesus is our protector, right? Because he's our father, and it's his job. Because he's mighty in a divine sense, he is perfect at his job. I don't perfectly protect my children all the time. I can't. Spend two minutes in my house, and you'll see that it's just not possible. If there were five of me, we still couldn't protect our, our kids all the time. They're just, they're just nat- naturally wired to be self-destructive. Right? Jesus can protect us perfectly. Where earthly fathers fail, our heavenly Father never fails. Right? So this is what it means for Jesus to be our everlasting Father. He protects us. He loves us. He forgives instinctively and constantly. And he gives us our identity, our our inheritance, our heritage. All of that comes from him because Jesus is our everlasting father. He will rule and his kingdom will function in a way that is unlike any other ruler on this earth and that he serves as our everlasting father forever. And so this morning, I have no challenge for you. I don't have any kind of, this is what you need to do in light of this, right? Perhaps you, you have, as you grew up, had or have a, a great father. Maybe that's your story. And so when you hear of Jesus as an everlasting father, you think of the experience that you had with your dad, and you just kind of take that and amplify it into the end and go, like, everything my dad was but perfect, because my dad wasn't perfect. Maybe, like me, your experience of fathers on this earth was something that is far more negative, right? My, my first real father abandoned my family when I was two years old, and my second, my stepfather, was an emotionally abusive punk who was you know, left when, he was, when I was 15. And so my earthly experience as a father are anything but positive, right? I, I have emotional abuse and abandonment in my paternal history. When I think of father earthly, that's what comes to mind. And so one of the things ultimately that had the biggest effect of leading me to Christ was in high school when I started to understand not just who God was, but to see the way that Jesus acts as a father. And you come to realize that Jesus is the only father that has never failed me or any of us, right? You can put him to the test. He is in every way perfect. And so my my challenge for you is really only this. this. This week, just revel in the love of Jesus, your father. Just ponder it. Think about it. Let it wash over you. If you feel a weight and a guilt and a judgment from 
from, from God or from the church or, God forbid, from any of us here, let that wash away and just live and press into this week the deep and abiding love of Christ. If you feel like a failure as a parent or a husband or a wife or even a member of the church, just let the, the love of Jesus wash over you this week. As you, as you sit around on Christmas, just relish in the fact that every single one of you in Christ are loved deeply by your Father, that He cares for you, that He is invested in you, that He desires you, that He brags of you, and that He created you out of love and sustains you out of love and holds you out of love. And Jesus just loves you so deeply. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We have all kinds of things that we love in this world to various degrees, but the thing, that, the thing about love is that it's so objective. We love our, our spouses, and we love ice cream, and we use that word so flippantly, but Lord, it, it has a meaning that is deeper beyond anything we could ask or imagine, and the only way that we find what true love actually looks like is by looking at you, our Father. And so we praise you and we thank you that we can experience a love that knows no end through you. We praise you that in the midst of our mess, you loved us. We praise you that you loved us before we loved you. We praise you that no matter what we do, no matter how far we stray, that for those of us who are in Christ, your love knows no bounds. We pray that this week and in the weeks to come that we would be reminded of and experience within our most deep being, the love of Christ. We pray that it might wash over us, renew us, restore us, fill us with hope and wonder. As God's people, as your people, that we would experience your love. Remind us of it as we go through the dark valleys. Remind us of it for those of us for who the holidays is just a dark time. Remind us, for those of us who don't feel loved by anyone else, that we might know and feel and understand that you still love us. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.